And we're in Romans chapter 11, and we're continuing the series, Truth Intention. And I, I want to ask you this, do you ever struggle with things that you just don't understand? Do you ever have questions that you can't answer? There's some of those that are big, and I actually, I, I stumbled across a few of those, like this one. Is the opposite of opposite the same, or is it opposite? I don't know. Or this is a, this is a conundrum right here. Why is there a fridge light, but there's never a freezer light? Have you noticed it? It's dark in the freezer too. Does a staircase go up or down? I don't know. Is there another word for thesaurus? Or why is a manhole round? I mean, I kind of take offense at that. Why do we call them buildings if buildings are already built? Why don't we call them builts? If you decide to be indecisive, which are you? Here's a good one. Russell, when you forget a thought, where does it go? I don't know. Or how can you describe something that's indescribable? That's kind of what we're going to try to do today. We're going to tackle a, a, a passage of Scripture, a chapter in a book in the Bible that a lot of preachers never even go into the book because it's a, it's a hard book to understand, to dive into. The book of Romans, a book of soteriology. What does it mean to be saved? How does God save us? But a lot that go into parts of Romans never make it to chapter 11 because there are some things that are seemingly kind of hard to understand. They, they create questions that we wonder if we have the answer. They, they describe truths that seem to be intention. But the Bible's full of that, right? Like this one. Jesus is 100% God, but he's also 100% man. How does that work? Or the Bible is God's word. It's perfect and it's true. We use words like it's inerrant, which means it doesn't have error. It's infallible. It doesn't contain falsehood. And yet, it was written down by sinful, imperfect men. Or, or how about this? God is sovereign. He, he's never caught off guard. Like I like to say to you, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? I mean, he's never surprised. He knows what's going to happen. And yet, the Bible tells us that we have free will. We have a choice in the direction that our life goes. So what do we do when truths like these seem to be in tension? Listen to how Romans 11 ends. That's where we're going to start at the end. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Sometimes when you look at the things of God... You just need to understand there are truths that may be too deep for us. We're not God, right? It's okay that there's some mystery that we embrace. I, I want a God that's bigger than me. I, I don't want a God that I can fit in my box. The depths 
of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. But look at the next verse. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? And then this verse, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Which just means, so be it. What is God trying to communicate to us? I I think you need to understand something as we dive into a hard chapter in the Bible. Here it is. It is impossible to understand everything the Bible teaches us about God. But that's okay. Because life is not about us. It's all about Him. He doesn't owe us an explanation. He can say, trust me. And then we have to determine whether or not we do. What we know is how this verse ends. It's kind of a doxology, a praise to God. And what does it say? It says that He is the source of your life. If you don't get anything else, understand this. Everything that's good that you enjoy, it comes from God. You're nothing without Him. He is the source of your life. But not only that, He is the lasting sustenance for your life. That's important that you understand As we talked to couples this weekend, even pastors and their wives, you know what I told them? Guys, don't forget, there's only one person who meets your needs 100% of the time, and his name is Jesus. But he never fails. He'll never let you down. He'll meet your needs 100% of the time. My God shall supply your needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. Isn't that good, church? He is our sustenance. He is always giving you enough grace. But here's the next thing. It says they were created for him. He wants his will to be the sole purpose of your life. He wants what he wants to guide what you want. And so as we dive into this passage of Scripture, that's what I want you to think about. Am I living my life according to his will and his way and in step with his word. Now, as you look at Romans chapter 11, Paul begins by asking and answering a big question. He does this throughout Romans. We've journeyed through Romans for several months, and regularly we found that Paul will ask a question as if he's asking something that you're thinking, and then he'll answer it. That's what he does in Romans chapter 11. Let me just say to you, and especially to our students, our, our college students, But regardless of your age, God's not intimidated by your questions. When you go through the hard things of life, some of you are walking through some difficult stuff. He's not taken back because you ask him to explain himself or to describe what he's doing. And so today as we jump into this, I'm, I'm not going to talk down to you. Because here's what I've learned. If my daughter, an elementary school student, if she can learn math, and, and on top of that, it's a new math. I don't even understand it. And, and if she can learn science, and if you high school students, if you can learn algebra and calculus and geometry and chemistry and biology, why would we not dig into the deep parts of God's Word? Is it possible that as a church, maybe it's a time that we try to understand these truths that we find in Scripture and not be content just living on the surface, feel-good thoughts that get us through? So, you may have noticed in our church, we pray a lot. 
If you're new around here, that, that may seem different to you. That's kind of a statement in itself, isn't it? We assume that you expect that when we come to church, we're going to talk to God. And we actually think that you might would expect that we would teach you to help talk to God too. And so we pray a lot. And I want to pray once more, but I want to pray for clarity and understanding as we receive God's word in these next few moments. And then I want to pray that God would change us because of this time. So Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray Here we are. Speak. We're listening. With our hearts and our minds and our hands open, we say, teach us, Lord. Give us what we need. And as we're learned in Romans 12 in the coming weeks, We need to be conformed into your image. We need to be made different. So operate on us, Lord. Oh God, I pray that you would save someone because of these next few minutes. God, I pray that a, a church member, a person who calls himself your child, but isn't living for you. I pray that that will change in these next moments. And Lord, I pray that my words will be your words and my thoughts will be your thoughts. And I pray that all this will take place for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 11, verse 1. I ask then, here's the question, Did God reject his people? The Apostle Paul is referring back to an Old Testament promise. We find that promise in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 is where God promises Abraham that his people will be the people of God forever. He says things like, look at the stars in the heaven just like you can't count them, you'll not be able to count your descendants who are my children, my people. Look at the sands in the desert around you, Abraham. Just like you can't count every speck of sand, you can't count those that are going to come in your line and be my people, the children of Israel. And so here we are now. Jesus has come. He was crucified. He was buried. God raised him from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. The church is now formed. And Jews are rejecting Christ. And so Paul's saying, did God's plan fail? Did he not accomplish what he promised Abraham? And he answers it clearly in these next words. He says, by no means. Say, by no means. And then he gives four proofs as to how we know that is not the case. Number one, he says, let me just tell you what I know. This is what I know. Look at the rest of verse one. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul is saying, I know God's not dead. I know God's not done because of what he's done in my life. And here we learn something really important. 
Your story is the best proof of God's work and His existence of anything that will take place in your life. Paul is saying, does God still work in the lives of Jews? Yes, because that's who I am. We have more of his story in Philippians chapter 3. Listen to what he says. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, check. People of Israel, check. Of the tribe of Benjamin, check. A Hebrew of Hebrews, check. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, check. As for zeal, persecuting the church, check. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless, check. Paul's saying, based on what I know, God did not reject his people. And the principle here that applies to you and to me is this. When it comes to God's existence and God's work, the greatest proof you can offer the people in your little corner of the world is your story. So I want you to think about your story right now. Because you either have a story with Jesus or you don't have a story with Jesus. There's a flow chart to your story. It begins like this. Before Christ. Before Christ, I was what? Before Christ, I was an addict. Before Christ, I was a, a terrible husband. Or, or before Christ, I was a hellion. Or before Christ, I struggled in fear and anxiety all the time. All of these things that are a result of sin in our lives before Jesus comes into our life. But then something happens. We encounter Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. You, you don't just say you're always a Christian. You encounter Jesus. Jesus said it's just like your birthday. On the count of three, I want you to tell me your birthday. One, two, three. March 22nd. Oh, I just slipped that in a little late because it's right around the corner. But uh, we all, <laughs> just kidding. We all have a birthday and we know it. We don't, we don't wonder when our birthday is. And Jesus said in the same way you have a spiritual birth. For the apostle Paul was on a road. He was traveling, persecuting Christ's followers as a Jew. And Jesus himself appears to him, blinds him by the glorious light that he shines. And Paul becomes a follower of Christ. I want you to think about something right now. When did that happen for you? For me, I was seven years old. It was in the backyard of my parents' house. I had heard all about the gospel because I had grown up in a Christian home. I'd been to church but it was at that day that I understood I was a sinner. My sin had to be punished. Jesus took my punishment. And because Jesus took my punishment, I could be forgiven and I could experience his grace. And I asked Jesus to take my sins and to come into my life and to take control. You have to have a story like that if you're a Christian. So I want you to think of when it was. I don't know the exact date. I've slept too much between now and then. But I remember the moment. That needs to be the case with you. If you can't remember the moment, if you don't know when that was, then you probably should think, have I truly encountered Christ? Because the story continues. Before Christ, then I encountered Christ, and then since I encountered Christ. So if, if you have some of those before Christ stories that I mentioned a while ago, that should change when you encounter him. So you're no longer an addict. You, you no longer uh, abuse others. You, you no longer struggle with the same things that you did. That's your story. And that's proof of the existence of God in your life. And you should be able to say like the Apostle Paul, this is what I know. But he didn't stop there. He also said, this is what God knows. 
Because the rest of that verse in verse 2 says, God does not reject his people whom he foreknew. Now, this is where it gets complicated because it reminds us that God knows who's going to reject him and who's going to accept him. And that's really spelled out in Romans 8, that chapter that we love in the Bible. Look at Romans 8, verse 29. For those God knew, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among the many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What does that mean? It simply means nothing in our life, nothing in this world surprises God. He knows. He's sovereign. That's hard for us to understand. That's why two weeks ago when we were talking about uh, this biblical truth and the truth intention, I said, imagine yourself walking into heaven. And as you're coming into heaven, going through the gates, if you were, you're going to see this sign. And it says, whosoever will, come on in. And you come on in and you're looking to worship Jesus. You're so excited to be there. And you look over your shoulder and you see the backside of that same sign. And it says, chosen from the beginning of time. Do I know how those two truths work together? I'm not sure my mind can fully understand that. Am I willing to trust that God can do that however he pleases? Absolutely. God's always known that some would accept him, some would, object, some would reject him. You look at the very first family. By the way, when we were teaching parents last weekend, I was just reminded, you know, it's easy to get off track, isn't it? That first couple, the first parents... They had a perfect circumstance, the Garden of Eden. They had a perfect daddy, God the Father. And they still rebelled. Then they experienced revival. They got back right with God. They had children, Cain and Abel. Guess what? One accepted God's way, one rejected. Get on into the biblical story. You see Abraham's children. Isaac accepted, Ishmael rejected. You continue in the story. Jacob accepted, Esau rejected. God's always known that there would be some who would not respond to him. But there's a third proof. Paul says, hey, this is what Scripture teaches. The best source of our questions about Scripture is what? Scripture. Look in God's Word. Man, as, as we live out life in our house, you know what we've always taught our, per, our, our children? The purpose pack. When we have life questions, we just ask this question. What does the Bible say? Most of the things we wonder about and we worry about, the Bible has already spoken about. So he refers back to Scripture, and he, he tells a great story. Now look at verse 2. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to bell. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Now I want you to understand this. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. 1 Kings 18, Elijah experiences great victory. He's a prophet. He needs God to show himself. And God does. So Elijah, one man, stands before 400 false prophets and another 450 false prophets. So 850 false prophets. And God gives him victory. So much so that the evil king, our, our queen Jezebel. Matter of fact, when I say the name Jezebel, I really feel like you should respond. So I'm going to say that again. And I just want you to boo. 
when I say Jezebel. The evil queen Jezebel. Yeah, that's right. So Jezebel was so mad that she sent word to Elijah. <laughs> she sent word to Elijah and said, um, okay, you think you're so tough? I am going to wipe the earth with you. In other words, I'll take care of you. You're going down. So here's Elijah who experienced great victory. Everything was wonderful. And just after that, he finds himself depressed. And, and I've just experienced in my Christian journey, that's not unusual. Sometimes it's in those moments that you've experienced the greatest victories of God. That after that, the enemy wakes up and he comes after you with everything he's got. And so Elijah went and he, he laid down under what the Bible calls a broom tree. And he prays what I call depression's prayer. You know what depression's prayer is? Lord, I just want to go to heaven. Just bring me home. This world's killing me. And then he falls asleep. And then the Bible says that a messenger of the Lord kind of taps on his shoulder and says, Elijah, get up. Here's some, here's some food and here's some water. And so Elijah just gobbles it up. He's just, he's not only depressed, he needs to be refreshed. And then he goes back to sleep. And a little while later, the Bible says that the messenger wakes him up again and says, all right, here's some more food and here's some water. So Elijah takes that and then he goes on this long journey. And he journeys to this mountain and it's the same mountain that God met Moses in the burning bush. And so Elijah's thinking, all right, maybe God's going to show up. And, and so this earthquake happens, and he looks around to see if God's in the earthquake. No God. And, and, and then like a tornado-type wind comes by, and where's God? Is he in this wind? No God. And, and, and then a, a fire comes by, just like with Moses. I mean, that makes sense, right? Maybe God's going to show up in the fire, but there was no God. And while he was looking for God in the shock and the awe, God showed up in the still and the small. And you know what he said to Elijah? Elijah, um, what are you doing here? And, and so just for the record, I, I think some of us, let's just be honest. If, if we heard an audible voice of the Lord today, he'd probably be getting in our face and saying, what are you doing here? What, why have you let it come to this? And so Elijah says, oh, God, I'm glad you showed up. I am your only one left. There's nobody like me. And Jezebel, Jezebel, she's, she's promised she's going to kill me, and I'm just worn out. I don't have anything left to give. And did I mention, I'm the only one left. And then God says, Elijah, second time, what are you doing here? I'm just telling you, I think if we heard an audible voice of the Lord today, a lot of us, a lot of us who profess to follow Christ, and if we've hung out in church a lot of our life, he would look at us and how we're living, and he would say, what are you doing here? And then he says, uh, by the way, you're not the only one left. There are others like you. In fact, there are 7,000 other prophets who've not kneeled to Baal. Now get up. Get back after it. Now, why is that story in Romans chapter 11? 
Remember Paul's answering the question, did God reject the Jewish people? And the answer is no. There's always been a remnant. God has always kept his people around. And the numbers may go down and sometimes the numbers go, may go up. But understand this, you're not the only one. And church, I want you to understand that today. Students, in your classroom, in your grade, you may not see it, but you're not the only one. And college students over at USF or University of Tampa or Hillsborough Community College, you may not recognize them, but you're not the only one. And in your workplace, you may feel like you can't stand for Christ, but you're not the only one. And in your neighborhood, it may seem like everybody else has abandoned God, but you're not the only one. Just when you think it's over, when you look closely enough, you'll see God at work. Just think about how the first century church would have responded if you told them in a couple of hundred years the seat of Christianity would be in Rome, evil Rome. And yet it was. But then imagine how the Romans would have felt those Roman Christians, if they'd have been told in a a few hundred years the seat of Christianity will move to the English-speaking world in Europe. No way. But it did. And imagine how those in Europe, as the cathedrals began to lessen in crowds and Christianity began to diminish in Europe, imagine how they would have thought if you'd have told them, just wait and watch this new little upstart on the other side of the ocean, the country that's just being formed and born. It's going to become the biggest mission-sending people that have ever existed in Christianity. They're like, then no. Imagine us 50 years ago if if we'd have said these churches that are full all around us, they're going to start closing their doors. The crowds are going to go away. Americans are going to reject their faith. But while that's happening, the faith is going to explode in India and the faith is going to explode in communist China and the faith is going to explode in Iran because God's not done. God's still at work. He's still moving. I want you to understand God's not dead and he's not done. And until his return, he will always be at work among a remnant of his people. And I don't know about you, church, but I want to be a part of that remnant. I want to be among those who are faithful. I want to be among those who see God is working in our midst. Someone once put it this way, if, if you're not dead, God's not done. He's not done with you. But the fourth proof that Paul gave is he says, God has always had a plan, one plan, his grace. Look at verse 5. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on work. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What he's saying is, sure, God had his hand among these Jewish people, but it was never about just the family they were born into or was never about these legalistic things that they did. It was always about the grace of God. And it's still that way today. Paul would go on to write in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. In the Greek, it's that word poema. We are his poem. We are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Scripture makes it clear 
The only way that sinful people like you and me can ever approach our holy God is a result of his mercy and grace. It's always been about grace. So God didn't reject the Jewish people. But that leads to another question, doesn't it? Did their rejection of him cause him to respond so harshly that he says, I'm washing my hands of this, I'm done? Or maybe, as some have taught, when you read the New Testament, should we say that the church is now in the place of the Jewish people? That God doesn't value the Jewish nation as he once did? The Bible calls us, if we're not Jewish, Gentiles. So, unless you're Jewish, welcome Gentiles. Are we the backup plan? Was that God's default? Look at verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble as so to fall beyond recovery? Have they, have they blown it and can never be recovered? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. What is he describing? He's saying God is still at work. He's not dead. He's not done. But there are three historic stages of Israel's response to Jesus. The first stage is the stage that Paul was living in. Did you know that when Paul and the other apostles went to a city, they would go to one place in every city first? Somebody tell me what that place was. It was a synagogue. They would go to the Jewish house of worship. Why? Because they wanted Jews to understand the Messiah has come. Jesus is here. But most Jews in the synagogue rejected Jesus. So then they would go out into the city streets. And they shared with us, Gentiles. And, and we had the opportunity. So he said, first, most Jews are going to reject. Then there's this other season of history that we're living in now. And in that season, he says, people of this Jewish heritage, they're, they're going to be envious of those of us who have Christ. Because we're saying that the same God that they worshipped loves us. And we, we're saying that he sent Jesus to bless and to save us. And, and so they look at our joy and, and the life that we live and the grace that we experience. And it creates this kind of, I wish I had that. But then there's a third stage. And that third stage is, is what he describes. Well, he describes it in verse 26. Look at this. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. He's talking about what happens at the end times. That there will be a day where there's a mass turnaround from the, Israel, from, from the children of Israel. Not Israel as a nation state that we know it that began in the 1950s. But the ethnic people who are now spread all around the world. As we look to the return of Christ, the Bible talks about the 144,000 Jewish witnesses who go around the world and we see this great movement of God. And what's the response of that? Look at verse 12. But if the transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will there be with their full inclusion will that bring? Now, all right, I lost some of you there. But let me just tell you what this means. How do we bring this home? How do we apply this? Listen very carefully. This means... No one, say no one, no one can outrun the reach of God's grace. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what that secret sin is, you're not out of the reach of God's grace. 
That means you, and that means you, those you love. So what did I say a while ago? If God's not dead, you're not done. So for some of you, today that should mean a genuine turning to Christ. But for all of us, if we're followers of Christ, that should mean that we turn up the heat on praying for those in our little corner of the world that need Christ. So we're heading toward Easter, the Resurrection Sunday, where we celebrate what it means to follow Christ. Here's my question for you. Who's your one? Who's that one family member, that one friend, or that one classmate or work associate that you're praying for, that they would know Christ, that you're earnestly going before God and saying, God, save them, change them before it's too late. Don't give up on anyone in your little corner of the world. If you're a Christ follower and you have people in your corner of the world that don't know Jesus, that's the message I want you to hear today. Don't give up on those children. Don't give up on those parents. Don't give up on those siblings. Don't give up on those friends. Keep taking them to the Lord. We all need God's grace. But there's one last thing he says. He says we can't take God's grace for granted. You can't outrun God's grace, but you can't take it for granted. Now, look at verse 16. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, this is about to get confusing again, but let me just divert and give you a bonus. If the part of the dough, the first part of the dough is holy, what's he talking about? And he uses this word first fruits. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, the people of God had a practice that would regularly cause them to remind themselves that everything good they had came from God. Now, in the New Testament, we have that in the book of James. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. Did you know that? Anything good you have in your life came from the God. It's, it's not because you work so hard. It's not because you're so cute. It's not because he likes you that much. Just everything good in your life came from God. So this first fruit principle started in the farming society. That's how they earned their living. So they would take from their crops the first and the best of the crops, and they would literally take it to the temple. And that would be an offering to the Lord. All right? And so that began to develop among the Jewish people. And so when they would make bread, they would take from the dough that they were needing to make the bread, and the first batch of bread that they would make from that first piece of dough they would take it to the temple, and they would give it to the priest. And so what God's children, what people who follow God began to give back to him became known as the first fruits. And so when the tithe was introduced, 10% of that which was given, when it was introduced in Scripture, it was a first fruits offering. It was a principle of understanding everything I have came from God, so I'm just going to give to him first to remind him and remind me that I get it. That's why in our church we're not afraid to talk about generosity. You're either living in obedience or disobedience when it comes to biblical generosity. Either you're giving your first and best to the Lord or you're not. And I would just tell you, God never blesses disobedience. And, and if you're struggling financially and you feel like you can't seem to, to get a grip of things, I would just tell you, 53 years I've never outgiven God. I've made a lot of expenditures that I wish I could undo. I've created some debts that I've had to repay. But I've never given anything to the Lord 
that I thought, I wish I wouldn't have done that. All right. Now, how does this continue, and why does he say that? He says, if some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root. The root supports you. This gets really confusing, especially for me, because I'm not good with plants. I mean, we bought two flowers because we were having our staff over to our house around Christmas. We bought them the week of Christmas. And by Christmas, they were dead. I mean, we're not good with plants at the Purvis house. But I, I do understand what he's saying here. He said, so you've got this original root that God created. And up from that original root grew this Jewish tree, the Jewish people. And yet some of those Jewish people rejected God. And, and so those limbs were cut off. But, but God made his sustenance, his goodness available to everybody. So he took from this other tree, this Gentile tree, and he did this thing I didn't even know you could do. He, he, he took a part of that tree and grafted it into the Jewish tree. And it began to grow. And you then began to feast on those same roots of God's goodness and of God's sustenance. But he says, be, be, be careful. Don't. Don't think you can take advantage of God's grace because your limbs could be cut off just like the Jewish limbs were cut off. So he goes on to say in verse 19, you'll say then branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Think about that. Just as some of those Jewish people part of God's family, part of the tree of life, just as they rejected God. When we reject God, we're cut off. So here's what I would be thinking if I were sitting where you are. Wait a second, preacher. Don't we believe in that thing called the perseverance of the saints? Don't we believe in the doctrine of eternal security? Are, are you saying that we can lose our salvation? Nope. Not what I'm saying. In, in fact, it's not what Paul said. He, he said, remember, you stand. We have to look at why they were removed. He says they were removed because of complacency or what Isaiah would call lip service. Remember Isaiah 29, the prophet Isaiah said, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts dishonor me. So you come to worship and you raise your hand and oh, the goodness of God. But you leave this place and this space and you look at the rest of your life, all the other hours in the week. And it's not there. He was saying, hey, Jewish people, just because you were born into a Jewish family, you're not, only, you're not automatically going to make it on the tree. And you knew Gentiles just because you know how to name the name of Christ? That doesn't mean you're a part of the family of God. Man, I'm just telling you, this is hard for me, but it's my life. Because I grew up in South Carolina, the buckle of the Bible belt, where cultural Christianity is king. And when I was growing up, everybody said they went to somebody's church. But it was Golden Corral Christianity. We had a Golden Corral even in Hartsville, South Carolina. And Golden Corral, you go to the buffet and you take what you want, but you leave what you don't want. Kind of Builder Bear Christianity. 
We make Jesus in our image the way we want him to be rather than being conformed and transformed into his image. So we say we're Christian. But you look at our life and we've never done the one thing he tells us to do, which is to make another disciple. We've never spent our life investing in the life of another. Or we don't faithfully attend his church. Or we never steward the resources financially that he's given us. Or we've been at this a long time and we've never told anybody else about him. And so we come up with an interesting theology to excuse ourselves. We say it like this. Well, I, I accept him in his Savior, but I, I struggle, struggle making him my Lord. And there's only one problem. That's nowhere in the Bible. We can't make Jesus in our image. We're made in his and when we come to him, he does desire to be our savior, but he demands to be our Lord. What Paul is saying here is true Christian faith is evidenced by the fact that you've endured, that you've managed to walk through the hardships and the hurdles that come in life. And yet your faith, though had moments of failure, has stood strong. That's what he means in verse 20 when he says, Granted, they were broken off by unbelief, but you stand by faith. So don't get arrogant about it, but recognize it and tremble. That's what the writer of Hebrews was saying in Hebrews 3 verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sinfulness, by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold to the original conviction firmly to the very end. God's word is very clear. Once we experience true salvation by grace, we are saved to the end. In, in John 10, Jesus said it this way, nothing can snatch you out of my Father's hand. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, when you have that relationship with God, saved by grace through faith, the Holy Spirit of God seals you to the day of redemption, to the day of Christ's return. Once you're truly saved, you are always saved. But once you're truly saved, true salvation endures to the end. So we cannot take God's grace for granted. Our faith is not something that's just a cultural understanding. And it's certainly not something that's just ceremonial. So let me, let me just beg you as a pastor, who maybe sometimes out of a good intent has even aided in this misunderstanding. There's not a magic prayer. It's not just raising your hand or walking down an aisle or getting in a bathtub and being dipped or dumped. It's not being part of a church. It's not just a ceremony. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a marriage ceremony that was glamorous and lavish? But then after the ceremony, the, the husband goes into the honeymoon and gets to the hotel with his new bride. And he says, wasn't that great? She says, yes, that's an awesome ceremony. And Man, it was glamorous. It was lavish. And he says, great. This is going to be a great marriage. But for right now, I got to go out because the boys are, are waiting for me. And, and we're going to go find some girls. And it's going to be a fun night. I don't think that would be a very happy honeymoon. 
Because a marriage is not a ceremony. A marriage is what takes place after the ceremony. And some of you, you've, you've done something at some point in your life, and maybe it was a step toward God, and maybe it was a good attempt, but it was a ceremony in your life after that moment has not changed. And you don't realize it because you're not a bad person. But you're lost. So I would just ask you, as I read this passage of Scripture, it, it makes me want to look deeply inside. So what do you see when you look at your life in light of these truths of God's Word? Now, here's some good news I want to end with. The good news is, one thing is very clear. God wants everybody to be saved. Now, I know we're all different. And truth is, I, just true confession, when I'm sitting listening to preaching, I'm usually pretty quiet. But there's some moments that kind of demand an amen. In other words, that's right, or preach it, preacher, or whatever you say. And that's one of those truths. So I'm going to say it again and give you a chance to redeem yourself, okay? God wants everyone to be saved. I mean, that's really good news, and it's right out of this passage. Look at verse 32. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience. That's what we learn in Romans 3.23. All have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. But so that he may have mercy on them. Say that last word. Now listen to it from 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people everywhere to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth, for there's one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, and this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. <laughs> Why is that so important? Because the very reason God created us for fellowship, for worship, takes place when we become a part of his family some of you remember I was in Argentina during the World Cup last couple of games I was home at the final but I saw this drone footage check this out this is in Buenos Aires it's amazing <laughs> I was there just several days before four million people in those streets and if you can hear the volume, they're, they're going, and then if you listen real closely, you can hear the Brazilians just north of them crying, sobbing. They were really, really sad. But why the celebration? They were so excited. They were pumped because their football team had won the World Cup. They were coming together regardless of their backgrounds, regardless of not knowing each other. They were coming together for one purpose, to celebrate. Bible says in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 that after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, and people, and language. And they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb and they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Oh church, I want you to be in that great celebration. I want to celebrate forever with you who our God is and what that means. So I need to tell you today, our God's not dead. 
And our God's not done, but he wants you to get in on his, what he's doing. So remember, he's your source. He's the only thing that's going to sustain you. He wants to be that sole purpose in your life. So what's it going to be? There's only two responses that I'm going to call for in this invitation. Some of you, you've just been playing. I don't want to say it this way because you're not bad. And you haven't even meant this in a bad way. But you're, you're playing games with forever. It's what Isaiah called lip service. I'm going to give you in a moment an opportunity to get that right. But some of you have not even, you know you're not even playing the games. I'm so thankful that you're here. You've, you've listened to a long and a little deeper than usual message. I'm, I'm glad that, that you're a part of this. But you know that you're not saved. I'm going to give you an opportunity to get saved. So let's bow our heads right where we are. Every head in the room. Those of you joining us online, bow your heads. Now I wonder if you're here today and you would say this. Listen carefully, please. You would say, Pastor... I think I've just been playing a game. I think I'm that person doing lip service. I've gone through a lot of motions. I've been through the ceremonies. I know some scripture. I've, I've prayed. But I don't think I've ever surrendered to Jesus as Lord of my life. Would you pray for me that today I could get that right and nail down my salvation? Now, here's what I'm going to do. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to do something that takes a little courage. Our heads are bowed, so it doesn't take a whole lot of courage. But if that's you, I want to pray for you. And I'm going to ask you to stand up right where you are right now. Just stand up. Just statistically, just, just think about my perspective. Statistically, there are probably dozens in this room that need to stand up. Much smaller crowd, first service, instantly couple of brave adults stood up. Anybody that would say that, Pastor, would you pray for me? I'm afraid I've just been doing lip service to the Lord. I, I want to get this right. I want to make sure I'm saved. Okay. The second question is this. I know I'm not saved, but I, I, I want to be saved. Pastor, would you just pray for me? that I would be saved. If that's you, I want you to stand up. Either one of those categories right now, just stand up right from your seat. Amen. Anyone else? You're not first. Anyone else just want to get honest with God? Stop playing the game. Stop going through the ceremonies. That's awesome, young man. Way back there. All right, I want to pray for you, but I, I want you to understand something if you're standing. And, and frankly, even if you didn't have the courage to stand, again, statistically, <laughs> there have got to be a lot of us in this room that are, are here. Um, fortunately, you don't need a pastor. You don't need me to experience God's salvation. But you do need to tell him that's what you want. So you just need to go to God and you need to say something like this. You, you need to tell him, God, I know I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. Jesus, I, I believe you died for me. 
I'm ready to receive your grace and your forgiveness. Come into my life and take control. Just take a minute and tell him that. If you're serious right now, just take a minute and tell him that. At least three or four of you standing now. And I want to pray for you as I said I would. Father, in Jesus' name, Oh God, I desperately desire to be a part of your true church standing firm in days of lawlessness and sinfulness in our world. I'm thankful that you're not done and you're not dead. So Lord, I pray that you would um, you continue to work in our, our midst. I thank you for these that have been bold and have taken that step to stand. Lord, I pray that as they cry out to you, you'll do what I know you will. Just hear their cry for salvation. Lord, give them courage if they want to talk to someone else or ask other questions later. Lord, just give them a sense even right now of the peace that comes from knowing they've done redemptive business with you today. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you, Jesus. You guys standing and be seated. I just want to encourage you one more thing. How many of you would say, Pastor, you just take a moment would you pray for my one you've got one person at least that you're praying for if that's you would you just real quickly just stand up right where you are just pastor would you pray for my one just as a point of contact all across this room so father in the name of Jesus we're standing because there are people in our lives that we care about that we love we know we don't love them more than you love them so Lord we pray that you would continue to call them to yourself for salvation and Lord we pray And then we desire to obey that you would give us the opportunity to be a witness for those that we're praying for. Lord, give us gospel conversations, Lord, so that eternity may be impacted. So we might be a part of that great crowd worshiping with you forever. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now, would everybody just stand together with us?